Welcome to Behind the Curtain, LA Opera's podcast series in which we look deeply at the creative process and explore opera's enduring themes and power to move us. In this episode, join LA Opera's Richard Seaver music director James Conlon as he delves into the history of French playwright Pierre de Beaumarchais and his beloved character Figaro for this pre-recorded pre-talk. See Mozart's The Marriage of Figaro now through February 26th. Tickets are available at laopera.org. That's the way it is with modern husbands. Unfaithful on principle, capricious by nature, and out of pride, jealous. Those are not my words, but rather of the Countess Rosina, whom we just left at the end of the Barber of Seville, as she joyfully celebrated her rescue and nuptials, both accomplished through the machinations of the greatly inventive Figaro. She has now been married for three years to the Count of Almaviva. His name translates as Lively Soul. Lively indeed. In the ensuing time, he has developed a roving eye, and as the lord of the manor, seems to have considerable opportunities to pursue his prey. And at the moment, he has turned his gaze to his wife's servant, Susanna, who is the fiancée of his servant, Figaro. The Marriage of Figaro, the second play of the Figaro trilogy by Pierre-Augustin Caron de Beaumarchais, 1784, and its operatic adaptation by Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart and librettist Lorenzo da Ponte, 1786, stand as two masterpieces of their respective genre. I want to look at these works today from the standpoint of class struggle, master against servant, aristocracy versus the serving class, as pertains to pre-revolutionary France and the battle of the sexes, germane to all times and ages. It is not possible in the length of time afforded to a podcast to study these statements in depth. I do so in an essay which, I should mention, you can find along with a synopsis on the same page where you find this podcast on Los Angeles Opera's website. As I scan the opera to give you a particular perspective, it can sometimes be frustrating only hearing short excerpts and snippets. But this podcast is not designed as a hearing of the opera. There is no shortage of great recordings available, but rather as another window through which to peer at this marvelous work when you do listen to it. Back to the dynamics governing this work. The first is the inevitable tension between rulers and the ruled. And the second is the confrontational magnetism between the sexes that both drives the species, society and personal relations forward and at the same time, holds them in an unending gridlock for dominance. The Barber of Seville is pure comedy. The Marriage of Figaro is a more sophisticatedly nuanced comedy of manners, upgraded to social criticism. It registers a point in the history of marriage's bumpy road from feudalism to post-enlightenment liberalism. Beaumarchais respects the three unities, action, time, and place, which were still obligatory in French theater. He squeezes all the action into one day and calls attention to that with the work's subtitle, La Folle Journée, The Insane or Crazy Day. Mozart captures the mood of that craziness from the first note of the unique and unusual overture. It is as if he distills the intrigues in the Almaviva household on this hectic day and speeds them up like a movie running too quickly.
It was unusual in Mozart's time to start an overture almost inaudibly, but he employs a surprise effect to telescope the upcoming comedy. The plot revolves around the practice, use, and abuse of the feudal Trois du Seigneur, which holds that the lord of the manor is entitled to pass the night with any woman in his domain on the eve of her wedding. Crudely put, privileged men took advantage of, quote-unquote, unprivileged women. This practice stands at the spoke of the whirling wheel of La Folle Journée, as it is emblematic of both class struggle and the battle of the sexes. First, class struggle. On the eve of the French Revolution, the marriage of Figaro sets out a competition for power between the aristocratic Count Almaviva and his valet Figaro. The playing field is not equal. It is defined by rigid class distinction. But there is a game of one-upmanship between these men that has a history, and they now seemed locked in a lifelong codependent relationship. This theme will be revisited in Mozart's next opera, Don Giovanni, between the Don and his servant, Leporello. The competition affords the servant a chance to beat his master at his own terms. In Figaro's first of three arias, he vents his rage at the Count. If you wish to dance, I will play the tune. It seems clear where Beaumarchais' sympathies are, and he implies that the distinctions between human beings should be measured not by their birthrights, but by their essence. The young page Cherubino is at the foretext of the Battle of the Sexes. Following Beaumarchais' lead, Mozart and da Ponte have directed his role to be sung by a woman. In his adolescent way, he is in love with all women. He is in love with love. He amorously flits from flower to flower, wanting to pick them all at once. He exhibits all of the characteristics of a future rake, a budding Almaviva at best, a Don Giovanni at worst. Mozart gives all of his characters an aria. There are two distinct categories, a reflective or confessional aria, one in which the character expresses private feelings and thoughts to the public, or an active aria, which involves interaction and is sung to other characters. We now come to Figaro's second aria, the only active one of the three. He describes military life, with lots of social commentary on the part of Beaumarchais, to young Cherubino. Amoroso, 
The act finishes in a military march with a flourish of trumpets and timpani. Mozart and da Ponte rightfully omitted the Countess's rather inconspicuous arrival in Act I of Beaumarchais so as to give her a grand and expository entrance. She sings a deeply moving cavatina, a term freely used for an introductory aria, immediately establishing the depth of her character. She laments her lost love and her husband's infidelity, the introduction to the first of the Countess's two reflective arias. The relationship between the Countess, Rosina of the Barber of Seville, and her servant Susanna and future wife de Figaro is warm and amicable. Her name, drawn from the Book of Daniel, identifies her as a model of chastity and fidelity. Though their friendship should be constricted by class structure, they relate to each other as if in a world of equals. The fact is, as is often the case in Mozart's operas, the women are more evolved. Rosina's inborn nobility and empathic soul distinguish her. So also does Susanna's innate intelligence, wit, and refinement. She stands out in an era in which the servant was assumed not to possess any of those qualities. Now Carabino has his second aria. The first act was a confession to Susanna, and this is literally a song, which, as in Beaumarchais, he sings to the Countess. Then Susanna has the first of her two arias. This one is pure action. 
she and the Countess amuse themselves by dressing up Carabino as a girl. Up until now, I have only mentioned arias, methodically avoiding any ensemble pieces. This emphatically does not imply that the ensembles are less interesting. On the contrary, they are the story's connective tissue. Recitatives, accompanied by a keyboard instrument, drive the plot forward with their rapid texts. But the ensembles give that intensity and depth. There are seven duets, two trios, one sextet, a minor masterpiece, and two extended finales. Though there were smaller steps taken before him, Mozart has purposefully and dramatically dismantled two massive tenets of operatic composition that preceded him. The strict division of serious opera, opera seria, and comedy, opera buffa, and the related alternation of action, text, recitative, forward dramatic mobility, with static moments of reflection, arias. He accomplished all of this and with the three Italian da Ponte operas, he massively raised the bar on all operatic composition up until and including the present. Nothing exemplifies this better than the two extended finales, constructed on a series of interlocking sections, each with its own distinct character, tempo, and dramatic purpose. Though each segment is distinct and identifiable, the music never stops, and its cumulative effect is to bring the first half of the opera to a rousing culmination. The overarching principle is simple and will serve most of the 19th century Italian opera with a model. The first part of the opera is expository, sets out the characters and the conflicts, and then turns it all loose. It goes until the dramatic situation and the struggle can go neither forward nor backward. It's a stalemate. Mozart provides a musical and dramatic climax and then lets everyone on stage and in the public calm down, ready to start again. I'm going to give you a super-accelerated hearing of how the second act finale is constructed. It starts with the Count and the Countess alone, a duet in other words. Then by adding characters one by one, it goes from two to three, three to four, four to five, and it finally jumps to seven. Here it is. The Count suspects that the Countess is hiding a lover in the closet of her boudoir. Allegro, fast. To the astonishment of both, Susanna emerges from the closet. It's now a trio. Molto andante, slower, momentarily immobile.
Susanna quickly and discreetly speaks to the Countess, who regains her composure. They align themselves against the Count. The shell-shocked effect is broken, setting up an allegro again. Figaro enters to the same G major as he did with the peasants in Act One. He tries to promote quick action for the wedding to Susanna. It's now a quartet. Still allegro, but a dance-like celebratory feeling. Mozart lifted this right out of a popular melody. The Count interrogates him. Andante, not so fast, the Count and Mozart seem to be saying. After barely slipping out of trouble, Figaro is confronted now by Antonio, the gardener. He is Susanna's uncle, and his daughter, Barbarina, loves Carabino and at least is tolerant of the Count's attentions. Somebody has jumped out of the window of the Countess's bedroom on the geraniums. The gardener is upset, and the Count again suspicious. It is now a quintet, allegro molto, very fast, like a tarantella, a nervous and restless dance that takes its name from the tarantula. Antonio the gardener is unceremoniously ushered out. Figaro, with the help of the Countess and Susanna, once again wiggles out of the Count's interrogation. The scene reverts to a quartet, and the tempo slows to a tense confrontation. Andante.
Then the last straw for Figaro. Marcellina, Bartolo's ex-housekeeper who wishes to marry Figaro, much more on her later, arrives with the support of the same Bartolo and Don Basilio, the oily intrigant whom we know from the Barber of Seville. She is bringing a court case against Figaro. He must settle a debt or marry her. Consternation on the part of Figaro, Susanna, and the Countess. Elation for the others. Virtually all of the principal characters are on stage. The music accelerates. Allegro assai, very fast. The excitement mounts. Pew allegro, faster still. Conflict, stalemate, climax, prestissimo, as fast as possible. The curtain crashes down on the pandemonium of the first half of the opera. The servants in this house take longer to dress than their masters, complains the Count. Figaro retorts, that's because they don't have servants to help them. It's one of my favorite lines from Beaumarchais' play, a pity Mozart and da Ponte didn't include it in the opera. The third act of Beaumarchais' The Marriage of Figaro is where it becomes the most political, veers most towards social criticism and towards satire of the contemporary judicial system. Mozart and da Ponte had to shorten the text. It was long by any standards and certainly by operatic norms. Excising much of the third act accomplished this, but more importantly, it greatly reduced the possibility of difficulties with the censorship and or royal displeasure. The Beaumarchais of The Marriage of Figaro was not the same man as the one who had written The Barber of Seville. In the decade between the premieres of the two comedies, 1875 and 1884, Beaumarchais' expansion into diplomacy had broadened his scope. At first, a minor emissary, then a seminal tactician and a supreme strategist and activist. His time in England had convinced him that France, rather than find itself in direct open conflict with their powerful competitor, should try to draw the oxygen out of England's wealth by depriving it of its colonies. The colonial rebellion fermenting in America was an opportunity staring the French in the face, and Beaumarchais grasped this. He convinced the king to pursue a surreptitious policy. The French would provide practical help to the American colonial army in return for imported goods. The implementation of this policy was left to Beaumarchais. He delivered guns at his own expense to the insurgents, including those that were used in the Battle of Saratoga, the turning point of the war, for American independence. No surprise that the marriage of Figaro has a complexity hitherto absent in the Barber of Seville. Mozart, together with da Ponte, elevated the opera buffa to a level of sophistication, complexity, and pathos that was unimaginable beforehand. Part of that transformation was accomplished by realizing the latent potential of the ensemble. We have already seen that in Act Two. Act Three will contain a sextet 
which will move the comedy from the ridiculous to the sublime in an instant. After the finale of Act Two, Mozart starts again from zero, with the long-range goal of creating a climactic conclusion. This time, not leading to a stalemate, but to the denouement, or resolution. All conflicts are to be resolved and loose strands tied together. He will accomplish this, as he did in Act Two, with an extended finale of interlocking movements involving all the characters. The crux of Act Three will change the web of relationships definitively. Figaro will be acknowledged as the lost illegitimate son of Marcellina, who transforms from his adversary to an indulgent and loving mother, and Dr. Bartolo, his longtime nemesis. The Count can no longer force Figaro to marry Marcellina, and consequently nothing stands in the way of Figaro's marriage to Susanna. The Count himself has abolished the droit de seigneur, so he can't employ it to satisfy his yearning for Susanna. Hope springs eternal, however, and in his perseverance, he walks straight into a trap set by the two women. As we see, in addition to class struggle, the battle of the sexes is the other powerful dynamo behind the plot's churning wheel. Here, the struggle for dominance is not limited to rank. The Count tries, and fails, to make his wife, her servant, and even the daughter of the gardener bend to his will. The women all employ their intelligence and charms to maneuver around the men. Figaro, eternally outfoxing the world, is outwitted himself by Susanna, whereas he has greatly demonstrated that he is ingenious and clever in the Barber of Seville, he is somewhat out of his depths with the women and the type of intelligence and insight that is necessary for good human relations. Mozart is clearly a champion of the women, the equality of the sexes, fidelity, and marriage. Now back to the music, continuing to concentrate on the arias of the third and fourth acts. Mozart radically changes his approach now, first for the arias of the Count and the Countess. They have become grand and are given the form of many a concert aria, by which I mean they will have an introductory recitativo accompagnato, not with only the harpsichord, but with the entire orchestra, followed by a slow movement and then a fast one. In the case of the Count, trumpets and timpani are employed in keeping with his social status. Mozart earlier did the same for Bartolo in Act I, but in that case, their presence was ironic. The Count has just won an assignation in the garden for the evening with Susanna, but overhears her with Figaro and concludes, correctly, that he is falling into a trap. His anger mounts and he swears vengeance against Figaro. It is a counterweight to both Figaro's and Bartolo's Act I arias. Here is a recitative. And here's the second part. Passerer, papa, per man, 
And the third, just the hope of my vengeance consoles me and makes me rejoice. And now the mirror image, the Countess's aria. It is also in three parts. First, the recitative. She muses over the plot to win back her husband and his fidelity. She exclaims at the end of the recitative, To what a humiliated state I have been reduced by a cruel husband's fusion of infidelity, jealousy, and disdain. And I am forced to seek the aid of my servant. That striking statement is the only time she refers to her superior rank in the social structure. And now the slow section. Where have the tender, sweet, and pleasurable moments gone? To where have the vows from his mendacious lips disappeared? Dove sono? But, unlike the Count, she turns not to retribution, but to hope and determination. By so doing, Mozart has prepared the way for the coup de théâtre at the end of the opera, the Countess's culminating act of forgiveness. This aria is not drawn from Beaumarchais' text, and it is clearly Mozart's intention to begin to focus us on the Countess's magnanimous compassion as an instrument of the divine.
I had promised to return to Marcellina, and now the moment has come. She enters both play and opera with a less than positive image. She is demanding to marry Figaro to settle a loan that she has made to him. We see her haughty and petty nature in her interaction with Susanna. Because we, and clearly all of the authors, identify with Susanna and Figaro's hopes to marry, we see her as an unpleasant, if somewhat comic, obstacle. From the moment she recognizes Figaro as her long-lost illegitimate son and identifies Bartolo as the father, she transforms. Upwardly mobile, she will now have a husband, a son, and, in her mind, respectability. But she seems to have a genuine change of heart and allies herself now with Figaro and Susanna. Her scene starts with a recitativo secco, meaning with harpsichord only. It is a close translation of the play. It ends with an affirmation that is insightful and cynical, but also forgiving. When our heart is not hardened by personal interests, she says, every woman should defend her own sex from the oppression of ungrateful men. Mozart and da Ponte had to condense one of the most extraordinary and daring passages in the play. Marcellina gives a powerful and stinging rebuke to men, eloquent, passionate, and far ahead of its time. So daring was it that it had to be cut from the performances in Paris, though Beaumarchais insisted it be published. Mozart and da Ponte knew they could not present it as it stood and found a more elliptical paraphrase. It falls on far more appreciative ears today. Bartolo, hypocrite that he is, accuses her as having led a wayward youth after fathering a son with her out of wedlock. Here is her response in the David Coward translation of the original Beaumarchais. Yes, wayward, and much more so than you think. I don't propose to deny my faults. They are all too clear today. Yet it is hard to have to atone after leading an irreproachable life for 30 years. Nature intended me to be virtuous, which I was, once I was allowed to use my own judgment. But at that age of illusion, innocence, and hardship, when predatory men besiege us and when we are most vulnerable to poverty, what can a girl do against so many concerted enemies? The man who judges us severely today may perhaps have ruined the lives of a dozen unfortunates. Unfeeling men who brand the plaything of your lust with a stigma of your contempt. We are your victims. It's you who should be punished for the mistakes we make in our youth. You and your magistrates who preen themselves on their right to judge us and, through their culpable negligence, leave us with no honest way of earning a living. Is there any form of employment that's left for a poor working girl? Even in the highest ranks of society, all that women get from men is condescension and contempt. Women are lured by a show of sham respect into very real slavery. If we have property, the law treats us like children. If we stray, it punishes us as responsible adults. Ah, in all your dealings with us, your attitudes deserve nothing but disgust or pity. But what difference will it make, my son, if you and I are rejected by a man who is not just? Don't look back at where you came from. Keep your eyes on the road ahead. Share your life with a loving wife and a devoted mother who will compete only to show how much they love you. Be kind to both of us, happy for yourself, my son, and cheerful, frank, and generous to everyone you meet. That's all your mother will ask for. In Beaumarchais, 
Figaro delivers a long soliloquy as his mood grows increasingly darker when he imagines Susanna to be unfaithful with the Count. It is an autobiographical tirade against the aristocracy and his bad luck in life. King Louis was not amused, and again Mozart knew that it would not go in the Viennese court. So he distilled a part of it and has turned it into a simple, jealous rant. The key is again E-flat major. Is that thumping Figaro's tantrum, or is it the thwacking life has dealt him? Near the end, he is tormented by the French horns of the orchestra. It's a musical pun which mirrors his jealous Act One aria, which also prominently featured the horns. The word for horn in Italian is corno, and like English, it can also mean the horns of a stag or the horns of a cuckold. It is clear which ones Mozart intends and which ones Figaro hears. Figaro addresses this diatribe directly to the men, as if to warn them all. It is an acrimonious outburst. He will appear all the more ridiculous for it when he realizes later that he had no reason to be jealous. It is now time for Susanna's only real aria. She has been on stage more than anyone else, always interacting, managing, aiding, and abetting when not maneuvering around the Count and his cohorts. Now she is alone or almost. Figaro is lurking in the shadows. Mozart has created this aria. There is no parallel in the play. He seems to have a higher purpose in mind than just recounting the narrative, and that is, in my opinion, to give Susanna, the servant, a moment of sublimity that defies and surpasses the expectations of her audience. We now will have had four soliloquies, fully revealing and significant, the juxtaposition of Figaro's jealous outburst with Susanna's deeply poignant and spiritual expressivity mirrors the Act Three proximity of the Count's angry invective and the Countess's touching and uplifting determination. The battle of the sexes is shown in full operation for both aristocracy and servant. The men fulminate and the women demonstrate their empathic humanity. Susanna is ostensibly addressing this tender love song to the Count in order to make Figaro jealous. But on a higher plane, through the uplifting power of music, she expresses her love for Figaro and transports us all into the realm of profound love. Through the spoken word alone, this dichotomy would be difficult to realize on stage. 
but thanks to the extraordinary capacity of music to express what often cannot be put into words, Mozart and Susanna reach together for the sublime. The aristocratic couple's arias are grander, with three parts and more lavish orchestration. The servant couple's arias are in one single movement with an introductory orchestral recitative. Susanna sings in F major in 6-8 meter. Both elements are often associated with pastoral settings, lovers blissfully united in an idealized vision of country life. But as for its spiritual content, it evokes the Incarnatus Est from the Credo of the C minor Mass. F major, 6-8, with prominence given to three solo woodwind instruments. Both arias challenge the soprano's ability to communicate deep feeling, sing with purity of tone, and transport the listener to the still point of the turning world. When well sung, time should stop, as it does here. I have surveyed all of the arias of the opera, with one exception, which deserves its special moment. I take a short detour backwards to the beginning of Act Four in order to introduce a subset of the aria, the arietta, or small aria. At that point, we discovered Barbarina, daughter of Antonio the gardener, cousin of Susanna, and, momentarily at least, a sweetheart of Cherubino. Da Ponte combined two different scenes to provide Barbarino with this marvelous miniature. She has lost the pin, lo perduta, that she was supposed to deliver to the Count. She fears for herself, and no doubt feels she has failed in her mission that would have demonstrated that she too could participate in the games and intrigues of the adults. It is touching to note that the singer who portrayed Barbarina in the premiere was twelve years old. This Arietta like Susanna's love song, is also in 6-8, but the key is now F minor, not major. Relatively few pieces are written in F minor by Mozart's generation. There was only a fleeting reference to it in Act I, where Susanna sang a similar motive when she too felt lost, son perduta, momentarily cornered by the Count and Basilio. Barbarina's Arietta lasts only slightly more than a minute, but is nonetheless one of the most exquisitely beautiful moments in the opera. Mozart demonstrates that the emotions of young people, rather than trivial, are as powerful as those of their elders.
Part of Mozart's genius resided in his ability to portray human beings with all their complexity and imperfection, to accept them as they are and to bind them to us in a harmonious cosmos. He is able to make us feel that the universe is in order, despite the possibility, perhaps probability, that he and da Ponte subtly raise, that their characters, their behavior, and their circumstances may not change much in the future. They likely will continue to live, love, and operate in the same manner that they have demonstrated in the operas. As he did in Act Two, Mozart will end with an extended ensemble of interconnected movements, a tour de force of complex music with a dizzying network of disguises, mistaken identities, and multi-layered intrigue, all in the pursuit of, well, many things. The Count, ardent and eager, arrives. He sees Carabino paying court to Susanna, or so he thinks. The Count, now agitated, wants to see what is going on. Figaro, jealous and unnerved, also wants to see what is going on. The Count swings at Cherubino, but, in the dark, strikes Figaro instead. That clears the air for the Count to start wooing Susanna, so he thinks, in earnest. The comedy resides in the fact that none of the men, including Cherubino, know what is going on. Eventually, Susanna, the Countess, that is, slips away into the pavilion, and the Count follows. The music briefly abandons its rhythmic impetus to pass into a suspended sense of timelessness, subtly evoking a dark eroticism as Figaro believes that the dreaded outcome of the Count's wooing is being realized. Figaro, in a moment of reflection, identifies himself as a participant in a mythic drama, playing the role of Vulcan. The real Susanna brings him back to earth, eventually letting fall her disguise as the Countess, and gives him a loving pummeling in payment for his jealousy. Figaro and Susanna are tenderly reconciled in another pastoral 6-8 movement. When the Count appears looking for Susanna, he believes that he sees his wife with Figaro, and with righteous and hypocritical indignation, prepares to mete out a just punishment. He is thoroughly benighted and has almost hit bottom in a moral freefall, which he doesn't yet realize. He calls everyone together to expose the Countess and Figaro, the more public the better, only to realize that he has fallen into an enormous and very overt trap when the real Countess reveals herself. The music mutates in an instant. The Count, humiliated, begs the Countess for pardon. Contessa perdona. In forgiving him, the Countess's spirituality touches on the divine. In a sublime moment, all motion halts, and the outflowing of compassion, humanity, and love 
is amongst the greatest transformative passages in all of Mozart's output. Three bars of music hover between hell and heaven, alienation and redemption, isolation and transcendence. And then the music explodes in a wild, life-affirming coda, bookending the energy of the overture. Man and woman, master and servant, all euphorically celebrating the culmination of the folle journée.
All of this reflects the culture of the Droit du Seigneur, around which the crazy day swirls. The marriage of Figaro conjures up the world of pre-revolutionary France. The aristocratic men, vain, capricious, and jealous of their prerogatives, rule their political and domestic domains. But the women, more evolved, bring sense and humanity into that world. The Ancien Régime still reigned in 1786 when Mozart introduced Figaro to Vienna. It was to unravel in France three years later and gradually over the next century in the rest of the Western world. See Mozart's The Marriage of Figaro now through February 26th. Tickets are available at laopera.org. If you enjoyed listening to LA Opera's Behind the Curtain, subscribe and leave a rating or review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to share this episode with your friends on your favorite social media, and we'll see you at the opera. Opera.